Well, good morning, Orchardville Church. It is really, 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 really good to be here this morning. And, uh, and I will tell you that uh, it's mostly because the eagle has landed. We have landed. We have a house here in, in Southern Illinois. It is so good to finally wake up, come to church, and uh, wake up in our own bedroom. Amen. So I cannot thank uh, those of you enough who came, uh, let's see, it was Wednesday at, uh, during lunchtime to help us unload a 26-foot uh, truck full of boxes, and then Thursday evening, uh, another truck full of furniture. Um, when, when Leslie and I drove up, uh, we turned off a of 37 onto our street in Mount Vernon, and the number of cars uh, from all of you that came to help us, uh, she just started crying before we even got in the driveway. <laughs> it was so incredible, and we are so blessed, and we are so thrilled uh, to be here. And so, um, like I said, it is really, really good to be here this morning because it feels like we really are finally home. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So open up your Bibles to 2 Kings. I'm going to have several uh, uh, scriptures on the screen for you today, but that's the one passage that we're going to look at that I'm going to ask you to read along with me, 2 Kings chapter 7. And uh, while you're doing that, I uh, just want to kind of uh, give you a quick heads up. Uh, we, we already have house guests, uh, which is really kind of cool. Last year, we went on a mission trip to Montreal, and we met two young ladies from a church in, in Huron, South Dakota, and uh, we became sort of a, a, a mom and dad to them, and because they were there by themselves, we stayed in touch with them, and uh, one of the young ladies is uh, here. She got here yesterday. Tori? Hey, Tori. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tori is here to spend the week and to work toward helping get ready for camp. How cool is that? And if, 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 if you do not have your juniors or seniors signed up for camp, then get with it. You got to get them signed up for some of that. That is awesome. And if you just, as an adult, if you just want to have your spirit stirred and just have some of those, those juices of your salvation that happened when you first got saved, you want to have some of those stirred up again, get here on one of the nights for, of camp, participate in some way. Uh, this is well, well worth your time. All right. So today is the final chapter of our series, CEO Faith. And we've been really looking at two important perspectives that sort of guide how we deal with life and in the business world, how you deal with the challenges that come along with being in the business world. And one of them is a shareholder mindset and the other is a CEO mindset. So let's remind ourselves before we dive into this morning what those are. So what question does every shareholder ask? Let me hear it. Oh, come on, church. The worship was incredible. I know you're awake. You got to do better than that. What question does every shareholder ask? What's in it for me? Absolutely. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And that's the thing that drives them. What do I get out of it? But that's not the question that God wants us to be asking. 
See, uh, CEOs ask a much different question than shareholders. What question does every CEO ask? How can I and church, that is the question that God wants us to drill deep down into our hearts and our spirits. Always be asking, how can I make it better? Now, there's a few things that we use to, to say CEO stands for. Let me just remind you of these real quickly. Constantly evaluating opportunities. Because what God is always presenting us with are opportunities to share who he is and what he's about. Far too often, followers of Jesus Christ see these opportunities as something to be fearful of, as something to be scared of, that I'm not ready for, that I can't do. And so we shrink back instead of stepping out in faith into the opportunity that God has provided, up, provided us. So CEO faith is constantly evaluating opportunities. It's also covering every offense. Because when we, we rally around a mission, it brings lots of people from lots of different backgrounds together. You may not have everything in common, and that's okay. Because you know what we do have in common? We have the cause of Christ in common. And the cause of Christ is bigger than any other cause in the world, amen? And when we share the cause of Christ, and we're moving in, in direction of accomplishing God's will and purpose in the world, we're gonna rub up against each other. And when you have people from different backgrounds that don't see eye to eye on everything, you're gonna have some conflict. But a CEO says, how do I make this better? How do I fix it? Because I am not going to let a disagreement on a minor issue uh, distract me from the major issue, which is the mission of God. So we're gonna cover every offense. A CEO is also gonna cooperate on every occasion because he knows that no matter how good he is, no matter how good his vision is, no matter how skilled she may be, you can't do it by yourself. You gotta have a team. We're in this together. And so we bring all of our skills, all of our abilities, all of our talents, and we put them all together to accomplish something far greater than any of us can do on our own. And then last week, we talked about being a constant educational opportunist, which means that we want to learn. We want to keep learning. We don't ever want to just get stuck in a rut where we don't, we don't en enhance ourselves. We don't improve what we know. We don't ever get to the point where we think we know it all. And in the Christian life, there are too many believers in the pews in the chairs of churches all across America that have gotten to the point where they think, I don't need to know anything else. I don't need to do anything else. Church, God never ever intended for any of his followers, any of his believers to stop growing and learning and becoming a better, stronger disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're always called to be improving, making better our knowledge and our ability to serve Jesus Christ. So that's where we've been so far today. We wrap this up. Now, in order to sort of move into this last idea of CEO faith, I wanna start with a story. And this story actually happened to be one of the favorite stories of President Ronald Reagan. Now, Ronald Reagan, I, I love studying presidents. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by presidential history. 
And uh, you heard me kind of share something about Teddy Roosevelt a, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and I just, I'm fascinated by presidents. And, uh, and I loved Ronald Reagan. And this was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite stories. There was a man that had two sons. One son was an eternal optimist, right? Everything was good all the time. And the other son was the exact opposite. He was an incurable pessimist. Everything was bad all the time. Nothing was ever right. Nothing you could ever do or say was good enough. And so he got an idea one year at Christmas time. He thought, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do something at Christmas that is going to sort of address both of my son's tendencies and see if I can do a little something about it. And so they had the normal Christmas and they uh, exchanged gifts and presents and everything. And then after all the presents were open, he said, I got one surprise for each one of you boys. He said to his pessimist son, he said, in, in this room on this side of the house, I've got a little special surprise for you. And prior to Christmas morning, he had gotten every technical gadget, every game, everything that a kid could ever possibly want and he put it all in that room. For his optimistic son, he had set up a room in the basement full of horse manure. And he said to his pessimistic son, your, your special gift is, is in, in the room on the other side of the house. And to his optimistic son, he said, your special gift is down in the basement. And so they both went running off in their directions. So he goes over to find his pessimistic son and he's like, I'm finally gonna cure him of his pessimism because everything he could possibly want is in that room. And he goes in there and his son is like all depressed and discouraged and upset. He goes, son, what in the world is going on? Why are you upset and depressed and discouraged? He goes, dad, you know, I don't know how you could possibly expect me to be happy. All of this stuff's eventually gonna break and there's so much of it, how can I play with it all? It's like, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. So he decided he'd go check on his other son. He goes down in the basement in the room that is full of horse manure and his, his optimistic son is swimming, just swimming in this horse manure. He freaks out, he goes, son, what are you doing? And his son said, Dad, with all this horse manure in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a, a guy who wrote about the life of Ronald Reagan, and uh, I got to remember his name. His name was Peter Robinson. And uh, he wrote a book, and he said that story to Ronald Reagan was more than just a story. Because that story to Ronald Reagan represented a way of approaching life. It was a mindset that Reagan believed that we ought to develop. Well, the writer of this book went on to describe how during the Reagan years, he met a, a, a minister who said that there's a lot of confusion uh, among people about this thing called free will. And he said, a lot of people believe that, that free will means that you sort of make up your own reality as you go along. And he said, that's not what free will means at all. Free will means that you have the choice 
and the ability to deal with the reality as it comes to you in life. And Reagan absolutely, positively took that approach. And he said that Reagan never permitted his misfortunes to interfere with his development as a human person. Instead, he used them. All of his life, Reagan exercised his free will by choosing to seek the good and the reality of life as it came. Church, that is what good CEOs do all the time all across America. See, they can get a terrible stock chart, the one that looks like this, where everything is going down, all the numbers are going down, nothing looks good, and they can find a pony in there somewhere. When they talk to somebody about their company, they will always say that my company is the best that there is. It's the best thing that you can possibly buy. It's the best thing that you could possibly do. They will find a pony in there somewhere. When, when they talk to their employees, no matter what is going on in the company, they will talk to their employees and they will say, you can do it. You have the ability to make this better. You have the ability to change the trajectory of what is going on. And they will find a pony in that news somewhere. Now, you may think to yourself, well, what's the big deal? They're a CEO. They're supposed to. I would expect them to say that. Well, yeah, you might, but wouldn't you want them to? If somebody is in charge of a company, would you not want them to find the pony in whatever story or situation that they're talking about? Would you not want them to find the reason to turn the chart upside down and say, we're gonna find a way to make it work? God is calling on us to be spiritual CEOs. To say, I don't care what the numbers look like. I don't care what the chart looks like. I don't care what my situation is. I am going to find a pony in there somewhere because I know my God and my God is a good God. And so this morning as we wind up this series... I want to give you three things that every CEO should be doing. Three roles that every CEO should not only be good at, they should excel at. And here they are. A cheerleader internally, an evangelist externally, and an optimist everywhere. All right? So let's look at each one of those individually. Let's talk about the CEO as cheerleader. All right? So I'm going to need your help with this. Ready? Give me a J. J. Give me an E. e. Give me an S. S. Give me a U. U. Give me an S. S. What do you got? Jesus. What do you got? Jesus. One more time. Jesus. Now, <laughs> that was pretty good. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but some of you are sitting here this morning, you probably thought, well, that was stupid. <laughs> it's all right, I'm used to it. 
And, and if you thought that that was a little pointless and a little, little weird, let me give you three reasons why you may have found that kind of non-compelling or, or, or worth taking your time to do. One is because you're not used to cheering, just not who you are. Uh, number two, it because, might be because you're not in the mood. And number three, because you just don't care. Well, if, if you're not used to cheering in group settings, then that's probably felt a little weird for you, okay? If, if you're not in the mood, then it's just gonna feel like, oh man, I just don't wanna bother. And if you don't care, then it's hard to motivate you no matter what's going on, right? All right, but when you do care, when you are motivated, when you are in the mood and you're getting used to this, then nothing could feel more natural. Now, I've already had some conversations with a few of you and, and I realize that many of you are already coming to the startling awareness that I am an avid South Carolina Gamecock. I grew up in South Carolina. I went to school at the University of South Carolina. I love South Carolina Gamecock sports, love it. And when I go to a ball game, especially a football game, when I go to a South Carolina Gamecock football game, you don't have to try to convince me to cheer. I showed up ready to cheer. I got out of my car ready to cheer. And, and everybody around me knows it. How do they know it? Because I talk Carolina football all the time. I have hats that say South Carolina Gamecocks. I have shirts that say South Carolina Gamecocks. I got a yard flag out in the yard that Dan already stuck out in the yard for me. You're a good man. I got stickers on the back of my car. My personalized plates say Gamecocks. I love South Carolina Gamecocks. And most people don't have to try to figure out, well, I wonder if he likes South Carolina Gamecocks. <laughs> Duh. I love it. And when I go, I am ready to cheer my head off. And everybody around me knows. I wonder, I wonder, how many people in our spiritual walk know that you are truly a fan of the Savior and your church? I wonder how many people in, in America at large are around church people all the time but they have no idea if they're really a fan of Jesus Christ or if they're really a fan of the church that they attend. Are there any indications whatsoever? Is it part of your normal speech? Is it part of your paraphernalia? Is it part of your lifestyle? Is it part of your enthusiastic discussion with the people that you know that you are a fan of God Almighty and you're a fan of the church that you serve. And, and I'll, let me make it even a little bit more personal. How many people in your church know that you're a fan of Jesus and a fan of your church? Do people in your church, do people in Orchardville Church know that you're a fan 
of Orchardville Church. See, I want to put this up on the screen for you because I think, I think you, you, you need to understand this. When we act as a cheerleader, we're letting everybody around us hear who our loyalty is for, but you know who we're really cheering for? We're cheering for the team to let them know that we're in their corner. Do you get that? When you cheer, everybody around you sort of begins to understand who you're for, where your loyalty lies, but you're cheering really not for external purposes. You're cheering for the internal hearing of the team that you love and support to know you're in their corner. You got their back. I want you to look at a couple of passages I'm going to put on the, on the, on the screen for you here. Acts chapter 15, verse 31 and 32 says, there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke extensively to the Christians, encouraging and strengthening their faith. And then in Romans chapter one, verses 11 and 12, Paul said, for I long to visit you so I can share a spiritual blessing with you that will help you grow strong in the Lord. I'm eager to encourage you in the faith, but I also want to be encouraged by you. In this way, each of us will be a blessing to the other. Do you catch what's going on there? See, Paul is saying, I want to come cheer you on. I want to come and share good news with you. I want to come and let you know I am in your corner. You can count on me. I've got your back in the Lord. And he said, you know what? You know what I'd really love? I'd love to be encouraged and cheered on by you. I would love to know that you got my back, that you're in this with me, and that together we are serving the mission of the Lord, and no matter what happens, we're going to stick together. See, we are too often, we come to church, and we're willing to sit and soak, and that's okay, we want to learn but sometimes we got to get up out of the pot and say, what can I put in the pot? What can I offer to make it better? How can I encourage the chef? How can I encourage this incredible worship team that shows up every Sunday morning to work hard to put together a great time of worship and music? How can I participate in that in a way that encourages them? How can I go back to the junior and senior high ministry and encourage the hand of those who are serving our, our teenagers? How can I go back to the children's ministry and encourage those, those adults that give their time and effort and energy to teach and train our children? How can I cheer them on? We're in it together. And our loyalty should not be a quiet, private thing, church. It needs to be public, it needs to be loud, and it needs to be frequent. Amen? There you go. That's the cheerleader, or the, the CEO as cheerleader. Let's talk about the CEO as evangelist. Now, what is an evangelist? I mean, when we, when we talk about evangelist, everybody thinks normally of, you know, 
John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham. It's always, you know, church associated. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but an evangelist is simply somebody that goes and shares passionately about a product or a belief or a system that they believe in. You can be an evangelist of anything. If you believe in a product or you believe in a person or you believe in a, in a belief system, then you can be an evangelist for whatever that is. And the CEO should always be the number one evangelist of his company, should he not? Nobody should be more excited or care more about his company than the CEO of that company. Now, some people may say, well, you know, that's, that's bragging. Well, I, you know, I grew up in, in South Carolina and we were taught to be humble, uh, but I did also hear this one thing. You might've heard this somewhere along the way too. It's a poor frog that won't croak in his own pond. Or it's a poor rooster that won't strut in his own hen house. Sometimes in the right context, we not only should we, we are expected to proclaim the goodness of what we're in the middle of. And the CEO ought to be the number one evangelist for his company. And if he was not, he has no business being the CEO of that company. If you met a CEO of a company and he wouldn't even talk good about the company that he was leading, would you have any respect for him at all? As a CEO, as a leader of a company? You expect him to talk about it. And in fact, I would say you would be disappointed if he doesn't. Why? Because he's supposed to. And if he doesn't, you figure that something is wrong. And I wonder, how many people are surrounded by us that are disappointed because they never hear us talk about our Lord and our church? They're actually disappointed. And I know we're worried about what people are gonna think, right? So we say nothing. But a CEO is expected to talk about his company. A CEO is expected to brag about his company. Brothers and sisters, I would tell you that as CEOs of our faith, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be expected to brag on our Lord. And if we love our church, we ought to be expected to brag on our church. Jesus was pretty clear about how important this is. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the chapter, before he went back to heaven, he gave his disciples what we know as the Great Commission. Right, And he said, go into every nation. Teach them what I've taught you. At the end of, of the gospel of Mark, in the, in the same sort of passage, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell them, be an evangelist for what I've done. Go tell everybody. He also said in Luke chapter nine, he said, if a person is ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of them when I return. Jesus said, you know, you don't, you don't have any love for me. You're not, you're not willing to share my name and spread what I've done to the world. If you're ashamed of me, then I'm gonna be ashamed of you when I return. 
Does anybody want Jesus to be ashamed of you when he returns? I don't. I don't. Look at your Bible at 2 Kings chapter 7. In 2 Kings chapter 7, Samaria was under siege by the Syrians and it had gone on for a long time and everybody was in desperate, desperate condition. They were dying, there was no food, there was no water. It was about as bad as it could get. It had gone on for a long, long time. And in verse three of chapter seven, it said, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate and they said to one another, why are we sitting here? Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we'll enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we'll die here. Now, therefore, let's go surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live. If they kill us, we'll only die. So in other words, we got nothing to lose. Let's go do this. And so they rose at twilight, and they went to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noises of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of, uh, king of the Egyptians to attack us. They thought, some other armies are coming that are bigger than ours. We got to get out of here. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives, even though nothing was happening because God was doing a miracle. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing and they went and hid them and then they came back and they entered another tent and they carried some from there also and they went and hid it. And then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You catch that? What we're doing is wrong. We're, we're enjoying all of this good stuff for ourselves. And we're not telling anybody else this is wrong church that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples when we enjoy the grace and the forgiveness of God who met us at our lowest point and loves us through all of our flaws and still says come be my friend come enjoy what I'm preparing for you in heaven when we enjoy all of that and we will not it with somebody else it's wrong Proverbs chapter 20 verse 11 I'll put this on the screen it says even children are known by the way they act where their conduct is pure and right in other words we, we sort of get to know who you are by what you're doing you're going to reveal yourself by what you're doing and while we're worried about what people might think of us, 
when we fail to share the goodness of who God is and what he's done for us in our life and the church that God has prepared for us where we can come in fellowship and enjoy community and the blessing of God together, when we fail to do that, what they're learning is that it really doesn't matter that much to us. And you know what, church? If it doesn't matter to us, why should it matter to them? If it doesn't matter enough to us to share the goodness of what God is doing, then to them, it must not be real. And so we must, we must learn to be an evangelist in our faith. The last one is CEO as optimist. I, I got this picture because it, <laughs> if you're a cat, you have to be an optimistic cat to enter that picture right there. <laughs> you just have to know that it's going to work out. Otherwise, you are taking your life into your own hands. Well, I mentioned Reagan a little bit earlier. One of the reasons why I loved Reagan was because Reagan was such an optimist. And I, I would suggest to you this morning that CEOs all across America operate in the very same way. See, they will find the glimmer of hope in every situation that comes their way. Every issue they will find that small glimmer of hope. And you know why? Because the world is built around hope. The world hangs and rallies around hope. Because when you've lost hope, you've lost everything. And so a good CEO will always find that pony. He will always, she will always find that little small glimmer sliver of hope. And church, we have way, way, way too many Christians in our churches that prefer to view life through a negative lens. Am I speaking the truth? Negativity is part of a fallen human nature. It comes to us naturally. I mean, you don't have to teach your kids to be negative, do you? I mean, it's just, it just comes out of them. They're naturally negative. But when we come to Christ, the Bible says that we become a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become what? New. And God wants to take our fallen, sinful nature and turn it into a redeemed, restored nature that is no longer exactly the same as the one that we were born with. James chapter 3. This will be on the screen for you. James is spending in this chapter talking about our speech and how we speak. And he says this, does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Can you pick olives from a fig tree? Or figs from a grapevine? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty pool. Church, we, we got a choice. We have a choice in how we see the world and how we speak to it. How we address what is going on, the, the reality of the world as it comes to us. We have a choice in how we will speak back out to the world about what is going on. 
There's the age-old question, right? Is the glass half empty or half full? Now, interesting thing about it is whether you say it's half empty or half full, the amount of water in the glass doesn't change, does it? It's the same amount. The only thing that has changed is your perspective. The only thing that has changed is how you see it. The only thing that has changed is how you describe it. Is it half empty? Is it half full? You realize, right, that people don't pay large sums of money to hear somebody go talk about how depressed they are? People don't pay for that. Why? You can hear that for free all the time. But they will pay good money to hear somebody say how to make it better. Because we are surrounded by negativity. We are in, in, embraced in a negative world. We are in, in, in covered in it. And so what we want and what we need is hope. We need somebody that will speak the darkness and speak into the despair and the discouragement and say, let me show you how to find hope in a messed up world. Let me show you how to find hope in a bad situation because I got a God who is able to do anything. We need optimists to carry the message of hope around to everyone else. We need optimists to speak into the world and to other people's lives and to spread the optimism of Jesus Christ. Does anybody really think that God is a pessimist? I mean, can you imagine God as a pessimist? Absolutely not. God is the ultimate optimist and he wants us and he needs us and the world needs us to walk over here and say, when the chart is upside down, I'm willing to turn it right side up. Because I know a God who can change everything. Church, as we consider our faith, are we being CEOs? Are we being proactive with our faith? Are we owning it? Are we saying, I don't care what happens. I don't care what challenges come. I am in it all the way to the end. I am in it with everything I got. I am in it to learn more. I am in it to take advantage of every opportunity. I am in it to be a deeper and a better disciple. I am in it to share this journey with my brothers and sisters. I am in it to spread the news of the gospel wherever I go, to cheer on my team inside, to be an evangelist for it outside, and to be an optimist of who God is and what he's doing in every situation that I find myself. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back to the platform as we prepare ourselves for communion, as we prepare ourselves to respond to the Lord. Church, will you be this morning a CEO of your faith? Will you stop holding on to it in terms of what you can get out of it? and start offering what you can give. Would you pray with me? Father, as we end this series, we've covered a lot of ground over these last six weeks. And Lord, at the end of this service today, we're gonna share the table of communion, which reminds us that you, 
God, you went to the cross that you died for us, that you suffered for us, that you bled for us. Lord, there was no half commitment for you. You were all in. God, this morning, help us to be all in. Help us to give everything we've got. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand? Whatever you may have heard over the last six weeks, whatever you heard this morning, don't come to the communion table this morning not fully surrendered. Let's sing together. Let's let God move. Let's respond. you need to with Jesus. Let's have a great communion in a minute. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you
great heart.